previously on Flying the Line. With the drumbeat of war growing louder and closer to the United States in 1940, President Franklin Roosevelt was growing increasingly concerned that an airline accident investigation by the Independent Air Safety Board would find that an accident was caused by an error at a government-run facility. The root of the concern was that the government was also preparing to go to war. So FDR announced that he would be shutting down the Air Safety Board. When the announcement was made, ALPA President Dave Benke vowed to fight. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 11, Wartime, Part Two. Dave Banke put up a good fight against FDR over the proposed shutdown of the Air Safety Board. Banke earned wide, popular support in the press. He personally led a second lobby to save lives to Washington in late April 1940, during which he tried to persuade Congress to block Reorganization Plan No. 4. There was only a single accident in the previous cold-weather operating season. The investigation into the January 1939 crash of a Northwest Airlines Lockheed Electra near Miles City, Montana, was a prime example of a successful investigation, as it resulted in the redesign of the fuel crossfeed system to remove fuel lines from running through the plane's cockpit. ALPA's only hope of stopping FDR's reorganization of the Air Safety Board lay in persuading key legislators to block it. As Banky and his fellow airline pilots were discovering, being right was not enough. The year 1940 had seen the U.S. airline industry operate without a single fatal accident. But when the president issued a formal statement commending the air transport industry, he omitted any mention of the Air Safety Board, which most airline pilots believed was directly responsible for the good record, instead citing cooperation and teamwork between the staff of the airlines and in the federal government. Banky wondered in editorials why FDR would abolish the principal contributor to the world's best air safety record. The controversy continued to swirl, eventually spurring FDR's enemies to the attack, including longtime ALPA supporter Representative Clarence Lee of Minnesota. Having been attacked so viciously, FDR lashed out with uncharacteristic rancor accusing his critics during a press conference on April 30, 1940, of being, quote, ignorant, gullible, and politically misled. He reserved some particularly harsh words for Dave Banke and ALPA, stating that a flood of misinformation has engulfed issues surrounding the reorganization and rebuffed the implication that the government was disinterested in saving lives, a not-so-subtle jab at Banke's lobby to save lives. Banky, who had been in FDR's corner for so long on so many issues, was unnerved by the thought of having the president as an enemy. Congress refused to block FDR's plan for the reorganization, and in May 1940, the Air Safety Board was disbanded. 
realizing that he was outmatched, in over his head politically, and in danger of alienating a man who could do Alba irreparable harm, Banky made his peace with the Roosevelt administration and turned his attention to the maelstrom that was Europe and the war being waged there. Sometime in early 1940, at the age of 43, Dave Banky took one last shot at the military career that had eluded him in the 1920s. Although he had not flown at all since his near-fatal accident in December 1934, he got back into the cockpit. He was considered a bit old by the standards of that time, but through judicious string-pulling with friends in the Army Air Corps Reserves, Banky managed to get checked out in Boeing P-26 fighters. He still held a first lieutenant reserve commission, but he was obviously angling for bigger things. Rumors were rife in mid-1940 that in the event of war, the airlines and all of their pilots would be called up for active duty. Banky expected to be offered a significant jump in rank when that happened, and he wanted to be an active aviator. While everybody waited on world events to unfold, Banky tried hard to mold Alpa into a more modern, technocratic entity. He began forming special committees of airline pilots to serve as his technical advisors, partly because he felt that the lack of this kind of expertise had hampered the effort to save the Air Safety Board. Banky was beginning to put together the committee infrastructure that would one day be the domain of the nuts and bolts types airline pilots whose personal and technical bents inclined them toward the non-political side of ALPA activity. In May 1940, just after the Air Safety Board battle was lost, Banky announced the formation of ALPA's first Engineering and Airworthiness Advisory Committee, an early ancestor to today's Air Safety Organization. Banky knew, however, that airline pilots alone, for all their practical experience with airplanes, would not give him sufficient weight when combating the airline's technical personnel. The airline's personnel usually sported an impressive array of fancy engineering degrees from prestigious universities. Banky began to search for a suitably degreed aeronautical engineer and hired Ted Leinert to be ALPA's first full-time staff engineer. By early 1941, ALPA's Air Traffic Control and Airway AIDS Advisory Committee was also functional, but its contributions were muted because, like the Engineering and Airworthiness Committee, it suffered from the lack of technical engineering help. All the while, the employment contracts continued to mount. Each one represented something of a trophy for the association, particularly Delta Airlines. This Southern airline, with its strong regional tradition of anti-unionism, proved surprisingly easy to conquer. When the Delta pilots under Charles Dolson got moving, they did a thorough job of it. While Delta had a reputation for being, quote, one big happy family, its founder, Colette Woolman, was shocked when his pilots unionized and joined ALPA. United Airlines also signed a contract with their 359 Union pilots on September 25, 1940, after nearly a year of negotiations. Second in size only to American Airlines, it was the 11th ALPA contract. 
Northwest Airlines and Western Air Express had already completed contract negotiations, but final signing was being delayed owing to a few minor points that were under National Mediation Board jurisdiction. Of the nation's major carriers, only Eastern and Pan American World Airways were still without contracts, and the prospects on Eastern looked bleak. But by 1940, their pilots were long overdue to have a contract. Time went on, and Banky requested a date to start negotiations with the company, but this was stalled month after month. At the dedication of Eastern Airlines Building in Rockefeller Plaza in New York, Eastern pilot Vern Peterson, a local council chairman, approached airline owner Captain Eddie Rickenbacker to ask when they could meet to discuss the contract and was instantly rebuked by the World War I ace. Banky heard this and went to Washington. Eventually, through some political pressure, the pilots of Eastern were able to negotiate and win a contract in July 1941, becoming the last major domestic airline to sign an employment agreement. Only national, among domestic airlines, lacked a contract. Panagra and Pan Am presented special negotiating problems because of their unique status under federal law, but in October 1941, Panagra signed. Because of the far-flung nature of Pan Am's operations, plus an innate streak of conservatism among its mostly ex-Navy pilots, Pan Am would not sign a contract until June 1945. Its 1,000 pilots lagged nearly five years behind their domestic contemporaries. It was a hard contract, requiring repeated intervention by the National Mediation Board. The first actual negotiating did not take place until August 1943, and the need to involve pilots at dispersed domiciles made subsequent sessions the most expensive in Alpha's history costing in excess of $50,000, which is approximately three-quarters of a million dollars in 2020. And then it was December 7, 1941, the day of the attack on Pearl Harbor. For Dave Benke, the first few months of the U.S. involvement in World War II held bitter personal disappointment. He was so ready for the call to active duty that he had prepared himself for it by requalifying as an Army pilot in the reserves. The military's new Air Transport Command was going to war, with desk-bound executives like Cyrus Smith of American Airlines, who had no previous military experience, claiming high rank and important positions. During the first few weeks of war, Banky anxiously awaited his call to serve. All around him, airline pilots were returning to active duty, and Banky's hunger to be part of it was intense. When his orders to active duty finally came, however, they were shattering. Banky had expected that he would be assigned to a job commensurate with his civilian experience. He had, in fact, told his friends that he expected no less than to be a full colonel, working personnel duties in the Air Transport Command. What he got was a measly promotion to captain, with orders to fly as an instructor in Texas. Once more, Banky enlisted the aid of Ferrello LaGuardia, who managed to get the orders canceled. In the process, 
Banky learned that his old enemies in management had drafted the orders to get him out of the way and bragged about it publicly at least once. So Banky embarked upon his great crusade to protect airline pilots from the use of what he called war hysteria to tear down our hard-won gains. The first battle would be over the indefinite increase in limiting pilots' hours from 85 to 100. Publicly, Banky went along with the increase limit, while privately he did everything he could to sabotage the increase. He told the 1940 Convention of ALPA members that the government was using patriotism as an excuse to tear down the 85-hour law and that it would be hard to get back. But Banky never blamed FDR personally for these reverses, citing that the president was likely receiving bad advice. He seemed to understand that both he and the president were now prisoners of forces neither could control. Banky had to float with the prevailing anti-labor sentiments that were at an all-time high in Washington. And FDR, in order to win the war, had to allow a free hand to Banky's old enemies. Believing that it was the airline executives who were the villains, Banky resolved to fight a subtle, behind-the-scenes guerrilla war. Its objective was to protect the pilots who were working for the military on the various companies' contract operations from being excessively exploited. As Banky saw it, FDR had made it clear that national defense should not be carried out at the expense of wages and working limitations. The airline managers who descended to Washington after Pearl Harbor expected to eliminate the federal 85-hour law entirely. Banky was willing to extend the 85-hour limit to 100, but would go no farther. The crunch came in 1942, when a committee of airline executives invited him to Washington to confer on an intercontinental supplement to cover pilots working overseas for various airlines under contract to it. Banky smelled a rat, the threat of industry-wide bargaining. Originally, Banky did not want to go to the August 1942 meeting at Washington's Carlton Hotel, but he felt obligated to because of the war. The Air Transport Association had named the Committee of Company Executives. In his first attempts to negotiate supplementals for the pilots of American and United, Banky had hit a stone wall so he knew something like this ATA attempt at a uniform contract was coming. Banky began the meeting by warning the assembled executives that they would get nowhere with him talking of sacrifices and weeping crocodile tears, because he knew they were making a ton of money on their contract operations. Furthermore, he said that if they tried, he would go public with the campaign to have everyone drafted for the duration of the war. Executives, pilots, and whole corporations. They would all draw military pay, Banky said, with all profits going back to the government or to the families of the killed and wounded. The meeting was off to a rocky start and got worse as Captain Eddie Rickenbacker threatened to fight the Alpa president. Cooler heads prevailed as the meeting continued. The ATA negotiators revealed that some of the things they were going to propose were not their own ideas, but those of the Army. Apologetically, 
Banky was given a piece of paper which contained the Army's pay scale for ocean flying, and he returned to Chicago to think about it. Banky was under extreme pressure. One high-ranking air transport command colonel and a former airline executive told him to play ball or else. But Banky realized the long-term threat to the profession, stating to members that they must defend the rights of our members in military service so that they will have something to come home to. Although it was not an easy thing to do, given Banky's natural tendency to be a flag waver, he hung tough during World War II, grudgingly giving ground on standards, but always warily angling for advantage. He won a few, lost even more. Alpa beat back a wartime effort by ATA and the government to raise the certificated maximum gross weight for the DC-3, correctly pointing out that new standards would mean that a DC-3 that lost an engine on takeoff at many ordinary airports would have a single engine ceiling below the runway it had just left. But there was very little ALPA could do about routine violations of federal standards and contract provisions when they occurred under crisis conditions just behind the battlefronts. Banky knew the real crunch would come when the guns fell silent. ALPA would then have to contend not only with the great technological changes wrought by the war, but also with the airline's demand for industry-wide bargaining. Banky was not about to surrender the privilege of negotiating with one airline at a time. Management surfaced the notion of industry-wide bargaining in earnest for the first time at the Carlton Hotel, using the Army's pay scale as cover. Banky would see it again in 1946. Next time on Flying the Line, the pilots of TWA take their fight for fair pay into the streets. Thank you for listening. This has been the second part of Chapter 11 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins, copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpa 2020. All rights reserved.